Amen. Praise the Lord. We can rest in him, our sure, sure foundation. Thank you so much to the Fleming family. Also, Brother Bob, and bringing our, our attention to our great God. What a great God we have. As we think on that note, let's take our Bibles, our copies of God's Word, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. This morning, we come to the very end of this letter, the very, very end. And it's intriguing at how it ends in giving us some of the, to put it bluntly, the most basic of all truths relating to the Christian life is laid down for us in the last verse of this. And so if you've missed all the previous sermons as we've looked through this entire letter, you're going to get the most important this morning because it's all summed up in these last few verses. There's also a bit of history in these last three verses, as well as a little bit of personal greeting, some significance of some individuals. We're going to take a little bit of time and look and see who these people are and their relationship with Peter, as we look also then at Peter's last words to these people in this letter. If you look with me as we look in this chapter, 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, Peter writes, By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elect together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus, my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Gracious God, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would teach us, that your Holy Spirit would move in each of our hearts and minds and remind us of lessons to be learned from these individuals, from these churches, but also to take heed to the glorious true grace wherein we stand. Lord, encourage us now, teach us, we pray in your name. Amen. Do you see some names there? I hope that they're familiar to you. They're people we have met before throughout the New Testament history. We have Peter, first of all, Peter the Apostle, that disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is writing this letter. We have Silvanus, also called in the New Testament, Silas. He was most famously the co-laborer together with Paul. We have the church at Babylon, a body of believers local to the city region of Babylon. And then we have Marcus, referred to here as Peter's son. Not biological son likely, but the same Marcus, known as John Mark in the Gospels, as well as the Mark who, in the first missionary journey, traveled with Paul. And then there's some people who aren't actually listed here, but we have to go back to chapter 1 in the first few verses to find out who they are. For we have there in the first verse of this chapter, Peter introducing himself as the apostle of Jesus Christ and to whom this letter was originally written. To the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We have a lot of different people. So here we find Peter writing this letter from Babylon. 
Now, I'll let you know, if you read commentaries, you'll find a lot of debate about that city title named Babylon there, because a lot of people refuse to accept the idea that there is any possibility that Peter could have been in Babylon, because as the first pope, he had to be in Rome. Well, Peter wasn't the first pope, and there's no record he was ever in Rome. In fact, here we find him in Babylon. Some have sought to argue that the Babylon here is uh, cryptic or uh, a, a slight reference to Rome somehow. There's no evidence for that. There's a little bit of a credence to the question that due to intense persecution that Paul may have particularly, or not Paul, Peter, may have chosen the city Babylon as a generic city and that the truth is his identity and his location is not being revealed. And that is possible because of the intense persecution at this time that the reference to Babylon is a general reference to somewhere in the world or somewhere in the Asia Minor region of that Fertile Crescent and Asia Minor up north. But if we take it as written, Peter's writing from Babylon. That's what it says. So that's what I'm going with, if you want to join me. He wrote it saying that the church that is at Babylon where he's implying he is at, is greeting these other churches, these other churches who are scattered throughout Asia Minor. And you remember we went through and covered that region and all of those different places previously of where this letter was sent. A region that is about to be overwhelmed or has just recently been overwhelmed with intense persecution. As, depending on exactly when the letter was written, Christianity has been declared illegal officially in the Roman Empire, and it has either just happened or it is soon to happen, and Peter is writing to the Christians, reminding them of their position in Christ, well, as we find here later, of their standing in the true grace of God. And so we have Peter writing to these different churches, and he sends the greetings from the church that's at Babylon to these other churches that are scattered throughout Asia Minor. He also, in this greeting, sends the greetings of Marcus. He says, my son. It's believed here that this is my son, as Timothy was the son of, P of Paul, and that is the spiritual son of Peter. Many believe that this is the same Mark who is the John Mark back in the Gospels. You may remember that there was a wealthy family in Jerusalem who made their home available to Jesus and, their, and his disciples. That's the home of John Mark and his mother in the city of Jerusalem where the Last Supper was held in an upper room in that family's home in Jerusalem. This is a Mark who apparently at that time was a very young man who was eager and zealous to be with the Christians and to follow with the Christians. And as the missionary spirit and fervor began to build, he was one ready to go with Paul and Barnabas on their journeys. And you remember they went from Antioch of Syria and they went over to Cyprus and then they went further north where they came to the very land where this letter is being written. And shortly after arriving there, John Mark disappears. He disappears. We, we don't really know for sure all of the reasons why, but it's speculated that it got too intense. Perhaps even the persecution got intense. 
which is really interesting considering that as soon as he arrives at the continent to where this letter 30 years approximately later was written, not quite 30 years, but this letter was written, John Mark abandoned the missionary team with Paul, and um, we're not sure exactly where he went. It was a big problem, though, for Paul, because as you know the history, I hope you know the history, um, Paul finishes that journey there throughout the region here that this letter is written to. And he goes back to Antioch of Syria. He gives a report of his missionary journeys, of the evangelistic outreach and of the planting of churches. And as time goes by, Paul is determined to go back to these churches. Again, the churches in the region that, um, that Peter wrote this letter. And it's determined, well, naturally, it would be Paul and Barnabas to go on this journey just as they did before. And Barnabas is excited about it, Paul is excited about it, and John Mark is excited about it. But Paul says, Mark's not coming with us. And Barnabas says, yes, he is. And it tells us there was actually a sharp contention between Paul and Barnabas, so their team actually broke up. And Barnabas took John Mark, and Paul took Silas. Here we have this letter addressing these two individuals. So on that second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, we have Paul going with Silas, and we have Barnabas going with John Mark. And often people have asked, well, who was right, Paul or Barnabas in this sharp contention? And if you look back on it from the perspective of history, they were both right. John Mark was in some way unfaithful. He was not dependable, and it was known to Paul, and Paul did not need that, nor was it important for it to be in this new missionary journey. But Barnabas also understood that there was a need for forgiveness, and there was a need of bringing one alongside and helping. And that's exactly or apparently what happened. So that as time went by, it's unfortunate and sad that it was a sharp contention. That wasn't good. But in the end, we had two teams that went forth. And later in the end, Paul actually, in his very last letter, speaks of Mark being profitable to him. Meaning that at some point, about this same time, we find that Mark is profitable to Paul. And it's possible that that comes shortly after the sending of this letter. Because if, if Mark is in Babylon with Peter, and he goes with Silas in delivering this letter up in Asia Minor, we don't know for sure how it works, but eventually Mark ends up in Rome where Paul is imprisoned, where Paul even acknowledges that he's the one there and profitable to him as a minister to Paul. So here we have this Mark who is sending greetings along with this letter. This the Mark who traveled with Paul. But who's this Silvanus? Who's this Silvanus guy? Well, we first meet Silvanus, also known as Silas, back in Acts chapter 15. Now, I hope you're one who tries to understand passages and important chapters in your Bible. And I hope that when you hear Acts 15, you have something come to your mind. If you don't, I'll give you something to put into your mind. We call that chapter the Jerusalem Consul. 
That's a famous consul. It's a famous event in the early church in which there was a major and important, significant issue about what role the law of Moses held in salvation and held in the Christian's life. It was a crisis of the church to deal with that. Acts chapter 15 is when the elders of the church and the apostles came together to determine this issue, to discuss this issue and the problem of it. And it was clearly established that no man could be saved by keeping the law of Moses. As some who were known as Judaizers or legalizers um, were trying to propagate in that time. You're not saved nor are you sanctified by keeping the law of Moses. That doesn't mean that the law of Moses is bad, evil, or wicked. It's simply, in fact, the contrary is to the law of Moses is good, glorious, and it's also a ministry of death and was a great burden. It doesn't save anyone. Very clearly doesn't save anyone. So how does Silas come into all of this? Well, the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem, in coming to this conclusion of the Holy Spirit and according to God's leading, wrote a letter that was going to be sent north. It was going to be sent into Gentile country, into the regions where the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone, where people have received the Lord Jesus Christ, where there are also Jews, and some of those Jews are saying, well, in order for you to be truly saved, you've also got to keep the law of Moses. And so it is very, 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 very important that the news is delivered and the teaching is communicated that no man is saved by keeping the law. And when you are saved, that the keeping of the law is not a requirement of being a Christian. This message had to be communicated, and so a letter was written. But it was not just a letter that needed to go. There needed to be someone who was trusted, someone who was faithful, who would be able to also communicate by mouth with words the truths relating to the decision and the conclusion of the Jerusalem consul. And two important men come forth. A man whose name is Judas, not Iscariot. Judas Iscariot is dead. And we're not exactly sure who this Judas is. In fact, this is all we know about him. And the other guy is a guy named Silas. It's implied that he is a Hebrew man, but he has a Greek name. We know that he is a Roman citizen along with Paul. What of his background beyond that? We don't know. Was he born a Roman citizen? Was his father a Roman citizen? Was he somehow adopted as a Roman citizen? We don't know. All we do know is that later on when um, there is a conflict that they have on a missionary journey, um, Paul rebukes the people in charge saying that we, plural, are Romans, and you have beaten us unlawfully. And the we is Paul and Silas. And so Silas is a Roman citizen, but he is one who is considered faithful. In fact, back in Acts chapter 15, we find that he is described as one who is chosen and chief among the brethren. He's chosen and chief among the brethren. He was described as a prophet. But there's another interesting fact about him that we learn about in Acts chapter 15. When the apostles and the disciples wrote that Jerusalem consul letter, 
as recorded in Acts chapter 15, and they sent it. They introduced, although it seems they did not need introduction, Judas and Silas. And in that introduction, it refers to Silas and Judas, Silas, as one who had hazarded his life for the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning that very early in the history of the church, in midst all of the persecutions, before the first missionary journey, or actually this would be right after the first missionary journey, Silas is known as one who had hazarded his life for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder then when Peter speaks of Silvanus and refers to him as a faithful brother unto you? Silas is one who had experienced persecution many, many years ago. And here now he is one who is bringing a letter. You might say the treatise and um, a course on persecution to the persecuted church throughout Asia Minor. He's one who knew persecution. So I said he's the one who goes with Paul on his second missionary journey. And we can trace that journey as he goes north. The plan is for them actually to go throughout the entire region that now here later, Peter is writing this letter. And some of that region they do go to. If you remember the history of that second missionary journey, they land there on the continent and they begin to go to some of the churches where Paul had already been, where churches had already been planted, and he's there to strengthen the brethren and to continue to help them. And you might recognize some of the regions that they went to. Why? Because if you look back here at the very first um, verse of this letter, he was going to regions of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. But you see there Asia and Bithynia? Do you remember the second missionary journey? They wanted to go into Asia, didn't they? But it says that the Holy Spirit forbade them. They weren't able to go into Asia at that time. They also wanted to go into Bithynia, but also the Holy Spirit did not suffer them to go into that region. But of the other regions here, that second missionary journey had been there. And so this letter is being written by Peter to these churches in this region, and they're the same, for the most part, churches where Silas had gone with Paul to strengthen and to encourage the churches in those regions. As the missionary journey continues on, there's another famous city in Asia, because at the end of that second missionary journey, Paul does end up in Asia, in the city of Ephesus, in the region of Ephesus. And um, at that point, we're not sure if Silas was still with them. Because we, we, and we, as we trace the history, we know that Paul and Silas and the, the missionary team began to expand and have different aspects, especially due to persecution. There was a lot of sneaking and strategy to get around it. And um, so it's possible that John Mark didn't make it with Paul to Ephesus and he stayed behind in Corinth. But this is, this is the Sylvanus. This is the one who not only had been sent forth with the letter from the Jerusalem consul, and how far and how broad and how wide he went with that letter, I don't know. I imagine that he actually may have also been, this was his primary mission going with Paul throughout those Gentile nations and Gentile regions, bringing and continuing this message of the gospel and in relation to the law 
of Moses. And so Peter now here, as he is coming to the end of his letter, says, by Silvanus. Well, what's going on here is that this whole letter likely has been dictated by Peter. And Silvanus is his amenuensis, meaning he is the one who is like the scribe. He is hearing what is being dictated to him, and he is writing it down. And so he's written all of this letter, because if you get to it, you might see there, well, look, this chapter here in chapter 5 has two amens. Amens are at the end. Amens may so it, may it so be. It is true. And if you look right there at the end of verse 11, we see this glorious climax coming to this book where it speaks, well, if we begin in verse 10, but the God of all grace who hath called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Does it sound like a good ending? Because that's exactly what it was. That was the end of the letter. And what you find here in verses 12 through 14 is the postscript. This is what Silas has been dictated, and Silas apparently has written all the way through here, chapter 5, verse 11, and it's all completed, and Peter has now reviewed the final manuscript to be sent, and he adds here in his own hand, verses 12 through 14, this very personal greeting as he acknowledges the one who has helped him in scribing this letter. Sylvanus likely a man who was educated, a man who was able to write well. Remember, he's the guy who's delivering the letter and communicating the teaching and truth of the letter from the Jerusalem consul. And here now he is, the scribe for Peter. And so Peter is acknowledging him, for it is by him. And it's possible, not super clear, but it's also possible that once he finishes this, guess who's going to deliver the letter? Most likely, Silvanus. Silvanus is going to be bringing this letter, and this is Peter's acknowledgement of that and thanks to him in that. And he describes Silvanus a faithful brother. He says, to you, as I suppose. He doesn't mean here, as I suppose, as in, you know, I think so, but I don't really know. It means that based upon the facts, I know so. He is a faithful brother unto you. And as I've meditated on that and considered and reviewed in my mind the life of Silvanus, the life of Silas, and seen him as one who was first introduced as one who had hazarded his life for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who was entrusted with one of the most important foundational truths and messages and letters for the early church, who goes forth, find him with Paul, there in Macedonia, Philippi, at midnight, in the prison, in shackles and bonds, singing and praying. The faithful Silas, who has the persecution intensified, made it sure that Paul was sent ahead and was safe from Thessalonica and Berea on down to Corinth while he stayed behind in the midst of the chaos and the turmoil. The faithful brother, Silas. He's described by Paul himself in his letter to the Corinthians. 
Paul escaped Corinth as they were hunting for his life and went across to the sea to Ephesus, Asia. And it's there that he writes back to Corinth and he tells them and reminds them that it was Silas who with him had preached the gospel unto them. He's the faithful brother. He was truthful, dependable, reliable. Are you and I? If Peter were writing of you or me today, would he refer to us as the faithful brother, the faithful sister? Do we live our lives truthful, dependable, reliable? Do we, if called upon, be ready and willing to hazard our lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul knew that Silas, Silvanus, was this faithful, faithful brother. Do the facts support the same for us? I hope they do. I hope they do. Well, there's a little bit of the history in the personal nature of this letter. But I told you earlier that if you'd missed all the previous sermons from this book, you'd get the most important here. So again, imagine with me, as Peter has, over a period of time, worked with Silas, Silvanus, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, written this letter. And now he sits down with that document, that parchment in his hand, or that papyrus, and he takes that pen, and he himself is about to write. And what is it that he writes? It comes there in the middle of verse 12. He says, I have written briefly, exhorting, and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. He's exhorting. That word is translated in other places as beseeching. He is, he is exhorting, he is communicating to them a most vital and important truth. And it is that they are standing in the true grace of God. Not only is he beseeching them and exhorting them in this, but he says that I am testifying. The root word, the root Greek word under that word testifying is the root word martyrus, the same word we get, the word martyr. The same word translated throughout our New Testament as witness now is testify. The church throughout Asia Minor is facing fiery trials. Here he has just spoken of them as those who will suffer a little while. A greatly persecuted church. And Peter is giving a hint here that he's not exempt from it. In using this word, in this specific word, he is testifying of the fact that he is declaring what is to be true regardless. And what is he declaring to be true? 
that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. Where are you standing this morning? Where am I standing this morning? Are we standing in the true grace of God? Oh, the grace of God. Just a few verses earlier, we heard that our God is the God of all grace. Do we stand in him? To help us to understand this, I'd like to think and meditate with you for a moment on the concept of standing. Did you ever give a thought of what's all involved as you stand? I've tried to empathize these last few weeks with Brother Glenn Swanson, you know, missionary to Cameroon. Just all of a sudden, one day, couldn't walk. Couldn't stand. We take this for granted, most of us, don't we? I say most of us because, uh, Brother Morris, do you take it for granted? No. He has a hard time standing, doesn't he? That's why you better be careful around him. Don't surprise him. Don't get him off his foot. We take this for granted. How many of you have fallen? I don't know if I need to have you raise your hand because we've all fallen. It's perhaps one of the most helpless feelings you can have. We don't live in earthquake country. My wife grew up in earthquake country where, you know, they'd have earthquake drills and so forth. But there have been, there's, there's been a few occasions where I've been in a place where there was an earthquake in the time I was there. And one particular, it's a weird feeling. It's just really strange. As you feel what is supposed to be stable beneath your feet is moving. That's not like the true grace of God. That's why they call it a fault line that causes the quakes. It breaks the true ground. It's not stable. You've been on ice? How many of you want to stand in ice and live on ice? Just imagine everything is ice. What a miserable existence that would be. Always walking about always afraid of falling, you might just find yourself deciding to crawl through it. I don't see Evelyn. Evelyn, if you can hear my voice, can you bring me my little girl? I like to use her as an illustration. I have a little girl learning to walk. But you know, we stand, and, and we, again, for the most part, take it for granted. You all know what this is? Oh, she's sleeping. Oh, no. Imagine if everywhere you had to go in life, you had to have this to stand. Would that be an enjoyable existence? A 
unfortunately, I'm afraid, many Christians live as if they need one of these in life. And we don't. We don't. Because if we are standing in the true grace of God, He will keep us up. That's why sometimes when we speak of one who has failed, one who has failed the grace of God, we would say he fell. Do you see the parallel? When we fall, there's something wrong. And sometimes it's because of what's around us, and sometimes it's because we're sloppy and how we're walking and not being careful. You know, like knowing our shoes are untied and keep on going. And sometimes it's because we are just ever so weak and frail. My grandma's not here today. I was going to ask her if I could use her as a sermon illustration, but she's not here, so I can't ask her. Have you seen her walk? Two people on either side of her guiding her through. Part of the reason is because this is a treacherous place. Actually, it is. With all the little people moving about. But you see, as we stand in life, do we stand in our own strength? Because if we are, we're, we're not going to stand long. In fact, the truth is we're probably crawling around everywhere. If we're trying to live life in our own strength and or in our own way, it's not a sure footing. It would be like living life always on the ice. That's a really scary thought if you think about it. Everywhere you go is as if you're living on ice. Think of the last time you fell of the hopelessness you felt as you crashed to the floor or ground. Peter's writing and saying to his believers, his brethren in Christ, it's not like we're living on a slippery slope of ice. We don't need to make up these little, little things of man-made, and I'm not making fun of a walker. These are life-giving to, to some people. But if, if we make something as a crutch for ourselves that is not in the grace of God, we're in trouble. We do this sometimes. We, we create our, 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 our self-righteousness things when we simply need to just move into the grace of God. Walk in the grace of God instead of always where we ought not to be. Whether it's in our own pride, our own arrogance, our own way, our own making, our own rules, whatever it may be, will we slip and slide? We will if we are not standing in the grace of God.
And so in all of this letter, and no matter what you may be facing here in this letter, it was a time of intense persecution. Intense persecution. Well, lives were endangered for the cause of Christ. Or it's a physical ailment, or it's a secret sin, or it's a temptation, or it's a doubting. Whatever it may be, be careful about making your own man-made crutches to slip and slide on the ice. Get off the ice onto the true, the true grace of God. It's reliable. It's dependable. It's the safe place even if the world is falling apart around you. We can stand spiritually. I think of how many times you may find, and you think of some of the persecutions that took place in this time where people couldn't any longer physically stand. This letter is arriving to people who have been so mutilated they can't stand. Some of the records that come from the history of this time period of how they mutilated and abused people who were Christians is unthinkable. They couldn't even stand. But yet Paul or Peter is admonishing them in where they can stand spiritually. This morning, don't spiritually stand on the ice with your shoes untied or with purposely leaving all the little things around you that cause you to fall and stumble. Move to the true grace of God. Peter is exhorting you. He's exhorting me. He is beseeching us. He's begging us to recognize the true grace, the true grace of God, wherein we stand. He concludes the book in verse 14 again with a greeting. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. As we stand in the true grace of God, we will have the peace of God, even if the world is tumultuous, chaotic, full of every trial and evil, we can still have peace if we are standing in the true grace of God. Romans chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2 tells us this. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This morning, have you been justified? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, come to him for forgiveness of sins, trusted in him? He has done all that is required for your sins to be forgiven. He has done it all. If we but believe, when we believe, are justified by faith, we have peace. We have this peace 
this peace with God, and it is again not through us, but through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is through Christ. It's by him, him, the Lord Jesus, whom we have access by faith into this grace, this true grace, this all that we need to live life, no matter what we face, that we need is in the true grace. It's in this wherein we stand. And when we recognize that, we rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And can I go back to the other, the, the benediction of the letter proper? Look with me in 1 Peter 5, 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Gracious God, we bow to you and praise you and give thanks to you that in you is all grace. And not just all grace, but all true grace. Dependable, faithful, always available whenever needed and meeting every need. We give thanks. Lord Jesus, we are so often as sheep going astray. We are always so often looking for satisfaction, for strength, for help in all of the wrong places, which often leads us to these slippery, unsure footings. Forgive us. May we confess and forsake our wanderings and return to you our true grace wherein we can stand no matter what we face. May you be a good shepherd this day. And though we may wander, seek and find us, draw us back to yourself. And may we draw nigh to you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would work and move in the hearts of those here today who are not your sheep. Those who have not received your grace, those who have not been justified, I pray that your spirit would move in their hearts, that you would draw them to yourself, that your Holy Spirit would work in their hearts and minds to reprove sin, to teach of righteousness and judgment. And in it all, draw them to yourself that they might believe. Believe in you, the one in whom is only hope of justification. In you, the one in which there is only hope of salvation, peace, joy, rejoicing. We bow to you this day. Move among us, and may we heed the last words of this letter that Peter wrote, exhorting and testifying to us 
of the true grace, your grace, wherein we stand. May we stand as we walk in your spirit. May we stand and be filled with your spirit. And may we stand in the strength of you, our Lord and God. For it is to you alone that all glory, praise, and honor belongs. You are worthy. You are worthy of praise. And it is now that we worship and praise your name. And it's in your name, the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.